this evening's talk is about spiritual urgency. And the Pali word for spiritual urgency is samvega. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you here this evening? We'll begin uh, this evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, really, regardless of culture, regardless of history, these murmurings of the heart, the deep questions and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is this thing called death? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully, in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world, with all of the challenges within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to spiritual practice? And again, why am I here this evening? Our practice isn't about getting caught up or mulling or stewing over these questions. But really, rather, these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. And as I've mentioned, this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken and the Pali term being samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's really difficult uh, to render into English because it includes quite a, a number of uh, different mind states. In the classical uh, Buddhist text, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So samvega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. 
it's an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or obsessive quality, but rather it's a quality of mind and heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, some degree of understanding the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. And so I'd like to look at that with you for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round of daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, the Pali word being anicca, in sensing and seeing and knowing the mental and physical phenomena in our lives, in ourselves, constantly arising and disappearing, maybe in gross ways and maybe also in some of the more subtle forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. And for some of you, this sense of urgency, some vega might be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life. The suffering of life from this particular perspective in general and maybe much more specifically in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge to move towards this other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it might be an emotional state that is somewhat difficult or maybe disturbing until it finds a, a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of the stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding some wholesome direction to connect to. And I think it's important at this point to note that continuing all along the way of our practice. For each of us sitting in this room right now, 
Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by the phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that maybe I'm directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm simply the observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is the movement of the heart. It's an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it might sometimes be experienced as an ardency, an inspired heart, an inspired mind, a passion for spiritual practice, something that I'm sure some of you uh, have felt at times, and maybe at least in part what helped bring you here this evening. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice really moves and inspires me. And I think it's quite fair to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. And this is one of the wonderful aspects of all of us being here together right now, of living or of being <laughs> in a practice community such as this one right here, even if it's just for a very short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, keeps moving us towards sustaining and deepening in our practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince, Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in a chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years in isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing 
old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events in life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred before, to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, the ease, and the comfort of his existence to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the very familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, that we've reacted. Reacted maybe by ignoring them, or maybe by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to the various manifestations of our aging bodies. Or maybe even by pretending or believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, one of these messengers touches us and touches us so deeply that we respond instead of reacting. We respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the very natural occurrences of life. 
Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that maybe render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this actually can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual and emotional or spiritual stimulation and inspiration in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us which, if we look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations, illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, which, simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and constant changing nature of daily life. And if we continue to look really carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we'll begin to sense and see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, dukkha in Pali, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths, which, put very simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third Noble Truth, the truth that, in fact, there's a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution for this predicament. The solution being to not cling, but to rather see things utterly clearly and simply be with them just as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That some of you, I'm sure, are engaged in walking right now, along, walking along at your own pace in this very life. As any one of you, any of you may have experienced sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one, of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be 
a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear or anger or grief or yearning or clinging and the self-identification that's embodied in each of these habitual reactive habit patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty or maybe a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone that you regularly have some contact with or maybe in relationship to the unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or bodily discomfort or myriad other flavors of our experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to really sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available to each of us at any moment. For instance, a moment of success or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of things. Your breath, sensations in the body, thoughts. Or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal. It's all polyword being anatta not self, impersonal. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing and seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path. Go deeper towards the end of suffering. Or, depending on circumstances, maybe to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. Each one of us have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many, many stories within our life as a whole. 
stories that in fact often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. And it's often a part of what I hear from students when we do practice interviews together. There are a number of wonderful um, stories and dialogues in the suttas, the Buddha suttas, telling of the Buddha's disciples uh, being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. This stirring by being done by the Buddha himself, or the stirring being done by one of the arhants, the, his enlightened disciples, or by the stirring being done by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose uh, practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths and sometimes very, very long lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya uh, called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland devas are approaching certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in these woodland thickets. And I'd like to share a few of these short encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. And then the deva that inhabited this same woodland thicket, having compassion for that monk, for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods. Yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, uh, lust not necessarily just meaning sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, for various uh, objects and various experiences. And then the deva goes on. He says, you must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, or a monk, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. And then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddhist Parinibbana, after his death, and his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda had been very strongly encouraged to attain a full enlightenment, arhantship, before the first Buddhist council uh, was to convene, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. 
Ananda had gone to the Kosalan country and entered into the forest, a forest abode, to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually <coughs> came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. Well, the forest-dwelling uh, deva uh, who lived there, uh, aware that, in fact, that the upcoming Buddhist council could, could not succeed or could succeed only if Ananda attended it as a fully enlightened man, uh, an arhant, he came then to provoke and to inspire uh, Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the short sutta. On one occasion, the Venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the Venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking to Ananda. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed nibbana or nirvana in Sanskrit in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, the, Ananda's last name or second name was the same as the Buddha, uh, Gotama, because he was the uh, family name of Gotama, because he was his cousin. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue because though, of course, none of us are in the same position as Ananda was, we're certainly often, quite often, caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Of course, not to the neglect of what needs to be attended to, but really to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling at a nun, Buddhist nun, was dwelling at Vasali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting that as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? 
than the deva that inhabited that same woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva speaking. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as quite potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. And the deva, who also inhabited this same woodland uh, area, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him, spoke these verses to that bhikkhu, to that uh, monk. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished or let go of attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you, sir, should reflect carefully, meaning attending to their true nature, attending to the true nature of things, the true characteristics with a very careful attention as impermanent, as not-self, and thus as unsatisfactory in nature. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case it was the Buddha, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse I'd like to share with you is about uh, a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms rounds and then eating his meal in uh, the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would then go down into a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And when the deva who lived in that same pond saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha, and entered into the forest to meditate. This bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him, she thought. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. 
When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the monk responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? And he goes on, one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds to the monk, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil, evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O oh spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And then the deva responds, and it's kind of a surprise ending. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that Bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. <laughs> Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and we experience courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith and confidence. Each of these qualities, these capacities of the heart and mind, energy, courage, faith, and confidence are essential in helping us to break through for what some of you may be some degree of timidity or maybe hesitation or maybe some fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency in relationship to practice and in relationship to yourself in practice. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse samvega. In speaking to a group of his disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourself. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping, and in this case meaning the sleep of ignorance and delusion? For those afflicted by 
dis-ease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? And he goes on, rouse yourself, sit up. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity, he says. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish. And he goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over, crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life, we could say, is keeping one foot out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, samvega. And the Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth and aging and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment -moment observation of the cycle, to be completely and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is really a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from some outside experience or some other outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in here in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind, our own heart. And then the Buddha in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to this suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular beautiful and noble qualities of heart, beautiful and noble qualities of mind. 
moral, ethical responsibility, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting, sprouting out from the original energy of spiritual urgency, samvega, that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a very practical solution, a solution that's actually within the power of every human being, a, a solution that for many of you here, a solution that many of you here, I'm sure, have a growing faith in, possibly, partially, through reading and studying the many stories, the many, many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really, most importantly, from what you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. Our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, develops, and deepens as it grows, as it develops, and as it deepens. For many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you uh, this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard, a, a story that uh, I found to be very inspiring and invoked uh, a sense of spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it uh, many years ago, and that continues really to move me every time I read it. These are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity. Wait a minute. Okay, I'll finish the sentence, but I started in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, where am I? Sorry about that. Uh, and the dignity of living without bias or motive. Last week, I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one before. He was 10 inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of a chin, maybe two brown hairs worth. 
And then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it filled the forest, moved the fields and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared, this was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to learn to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing to do is stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one's necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, 
thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of our exploration this evening of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death, words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to really exhort them to keep going on the path. And this particular quote that I'll share with you is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that come from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I've found to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world, for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. In closing this evening's talk, we come right back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver, the poet Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar, out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. 
Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit silently for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll have a few moments uh, here for those that would like to leave. And anyone, uh, any, all of you or any of you are welcome to stay for some uh, Q&A discussion time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.